Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello and welcome back to the podcast which looks back fondly to growing up in 1970s Britain and the role that television played in our lives and indeed in our families' lives too. Yes, it was a time of brown and orange clothes, instant mashed potato and economic ruin for the United Kingdom. But for me and lots of you listening, it was a marvellous time with no cares, little responsibilities and not much appreciation of what life will be like once we got more serious and grown up. In short, it was our childhood, and, like most people, I remember it fondly. As always, thanks for all your messages on the blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, on our social media channels, and via email, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. I've had lots of messages from new listeners, which is great, and I'll share with you, just a little secret, that we've had more people listening in the last six months than we've had over the entire lifetime of the podcast up until then. So thanks to all of you. And if you like what you hear, tell your friends. I'm sure they'll love listening too. Advert over. Now, as I'm recording this episode, the sun is shining down outside as the UK experiences its first heatwave of the summer. Now, if you're listening on catch-up at Christmas, then that won't feel very relevant to you. But um, for me, I don't know, the sunshine and warmth makes me feel really happy and positive. And I don't think I'm the only one. Where I live in North Yorkshire, people have thrown off their winter coats, or or big coats as they're known around here, and have dived straight into full-on summer gear. The women are in nice summer dresses, many of which this year look just like the ones I remember women wearing in the 1970s. You know, long and floaty ones. I'm sure there is a more technical name for them. And men are, well, men are in the alternative British national dress of shorts and t-shirts. Oh, there are also plenty of vests on display as well. Now, I may be a bit picky here, but I think a vest is a bit of a difficult look for most people to carry off well, other than maybe Linford Christie on the track. But lots of people try and, well, in my opinion, it's not a great look. Sorry if I've offended any listeners with my fashion sensibilities, but I am sitting here recording this episode wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Anyway, the other great thing is that people are smiling. Now, people tend to speak to each other in the north of England, unlike certain parts of the country. But I do believe even in London, the warm weather encourages people to sometimes say hello to each other as they're walking down the street. Although on the other hand, that may be an urban myth. But anyway, overall, the truth is our island is up in the Northern Hemisphere. So we make the most of what good weather we get. And boy, are we optimistic about that. As the other thing that happens around this time of year is that we plan lots of activities outside despite generations of experience of what the British weather can be like. Yes, we're in the days where the smells of next-door barbecue, burnt sausages and burgers wafts around the neighbourhood 
mingling in with the scent of burning flesh as it goes pink after being exposed to the sun after six months of being covered up under several layers. And then there are music festivals for all the family, outdoor classical concerts and cinema screenings, and major sporting events like Royal Ascot, Wimbledon and test matches in cricket. Our optimism is boundless. And then, when we do get caught out by the weather, we make a brave show of getting on with it and still having a great time in a very British sort of stipper for lit way. It was the same in the 1970s, although in my memory it never seemed to rain much during the summer. Which it must have done, this being Britain. We didn't always have the variety of outdoor events as we have now. I think music festivals were more the preserve of a certain kind of teenager and bunch of drug fueled hippies rather than the family-friendly events we now see. I think we're also a bit more locally focused as well. As I remember, there were lots of local events like village fates, garden parties and activities around people's workplaces and schools. Many big employers had sports and social clubs which provided no end of events and activities, both social and sporting, and also provided events for all the family at minimal cost, in stark contrast to the big ticket prices we pay now for concerts and festivals. One of the highlights of Padgate, the village where I grew up as a small child, was the Vicarage Garden Party, organised by my mother and father, and held in our pretty enormous garden, or so it seemed as a small child. I used to love it. There were games for adults and children, tug-of-war competitions, stalls selling sweets and cakes and all kinds of things. Afternoon tea was served on the lawn, and it really was like something for the 1950s rather than the 1970s, especially given my father normally wore a pale linen jacket and a Panama hat, so it looked every inch the vicar from an Agatha Christie novel. And then there were all sorts of events connected with my primary school. At the first suggestion of sunshine, there was the constant nagging of teachers and the playground monitors about being allowed on the playing fields. My school had what seemed to me a huge open green expanse of playing field, and the thought of being allowed to play on it during the summer was pretty intoxicating. Eventually, the order would be given to allow us to play on the grass, and the usual playground games of football or pretending to be soldiers, and instead of falling down on the tarmac of the playground, we could fall down on the grass, leaving huge grass stains in our knees. The repertoire of games also widened as old cricket bats and battered tennis rackets emerged from winter hibernation. I remember learning to play cricket in what were quite tricky circumstances, playing with an old bat, a tennis ball, and about 30 fielders, which I suppose was quite a good way of learning good shot placement, especially when the one-hand-one-bounce rule was applied. But I suppose the highlight of the sporting calendar was the school sports day. This was the one time of year when everyone had to get involved in sport, whether they wanted to or not. At my primary school, we had a 100 metre track laid out, or maybe it was 100 feet, I can't remember. And it was marked out by using some kind of liquid which turned the grass brown and sort of burnt it. Uh, I'm guessing it was some acid or creosote or something. Um, Actually, hang on. Let me take a look at Tinternet and see if they can help. Oh, this Tinternet, you know, it's the future. It's the future, I swear it is. 
Oh, this is interesting. Now, here we are. It's amazing what you can find on here. Thanks to uh, pitchcare.com, I can tell you from their article on the art of line marking, and I quote, early marking materials did not have the ability to last long, being easily washed out during rain. To overcome this problem, some ground staff resorted to adding weed killers or substituting white line marking materials with creosote. The use of these materials generally killed off the grass, and between the 1960s and the 1980s was an accepted practice. Law now bans the use of lime and creosote. I'm not surprised. I'm absolutely stunned. I was only joking with the creosote line. But it now seems that I, and I'm sure many of you, are running on tracks marked out by weed killer and deadly poison. Oh well, doesn't seem to have done me any lasting damage. Or has it? Well, back to the sports day. At our school, I remember we had a whole range of events, ranging from the more straightforward running events through to the more exciting, well, for me anyway, events like the egg and spoon race, the sack race, and the race where you had to run down the track balancing a beanbag on your head. Do you know, whoever invented the beanbag must have cleaned up in the 1970s, as every school had them, and we used them for all sorts of things like carrying them around obstacle courses, throwing them around in the school hall, and, as mentioned, balancing them on your head as you attempted to run straight walk down the track. There was also much talk of a game actually called beanbag, but we never found out whether this was true or what the rules were. So, if your family has grown rich off the back of selling beanbags to primary schools, I salute you. Oh, and if anybody does know the rules of the mythical beanbag game, please let me know. We also had more traditional events like long jump and high jump. Well, as I remember, there wasn't any sandpit or big mat to break your fall. No, you just jumped as far or as high as you could, landed on the grass and suffered the consequences. I remember that the high jump used to be a rope suspended by two wooden poles. And on every sports day, it was guaranteed to include at least one serious injury from the high jump. I remember my friend Andrew jumping over the rope and dislocating his shoulder when he landed on the grass. He then stood up and said, Don't worry, this happens all the time, as he grabbed his arm and attempted to pop it back in, as he said. I shan't tell you what happened next, but he returned to school a few days later with a broken collarbone and a course of heavy painkillers. One thing that we didn't have, thank goodness, was the parents' race. Now, I'm not a parent myself, but the thought of my mother or father lining up to race against the other mums and dads is inconceivable. The sheer embarrassment of being even seen with your parents after you get to a certain age is crippling, but to have them race in public would have been absolutely mortifying. I did read recently in the newspaper about a dad who'd sustained a serious injury in the parents' race as he'd been overtraining and snapped some tendons or something or strained some ligaments. That's not altogether surprising, in my opinion. In spite of the potential of creosote poisoning, broken bones from the high jump, and the extremely annoying way that my egg always managed to fall off its spoon at a vital part of the race, I remember primary school sports days as being great fun. And it genuinely didn't matter who won or lost. Apart from the year when I was demoted from winning the set race as my running technique 
was called out as cheating. Can you believe it? Yeah, well, where are the rules saying you have to jump and not run? Well, probably in the same place as the rules for that beanbag game I was talking about earlier. And at the end of the day, when all the prizes have been won, parents, children and teachers all got together for sandwiches in orange squash before going home. I'm sure that my experience isn't unique and that across the UK, the spirit of school sports day was strong. I think it must have been because the spirit of school sports days was the inspiration for a BBC show, which broadcast its first episode exactly 50 years ago this week. We Are The Champions was the school sports day on a grand scale. The show took the basic elements of a school sports day and turned them into a show where three schools competed against each other on land and in the swimming pool to be champions. The format of the episodes was pretty similar. The show opened with credits showing great sports people playing football, cricket and rugby or riding a horse in a show jumping ring and then moved on to the three teams who were proudly representing their schools, standing in a soggy field next to a leisure centre in Essex, or wherever, or whatever place the cameras had descended on that week. The host of the show was the legendary athletics commentator Ron Pickering, not to be confused with the legendary resident of Hull, Ronnie Pickering, who, if you don't know who I'm talking about, you can learn more about on that internet. Yes, Ron Pickering was a great amongst the commentators of the time. He had been a top elite athletics coach with the British Olympic team in 1964, coaching Lynn Davis to long jump gold. And in 1968, he was invited to be part of the BBC commentary team in that year's Tokyo Olympics. And from that point, he and the likes of David Coleman and David Vine became the voice of athletics for millions of British television viewers. The format of the show was pretty formulaic, to be honest, in that Ron would appear, give an introduction to where the show was being filmed, and then introduce the teams who would be enthusiastically cheered on by their schoolmates from the sidelines. Although I seem to remember the level of enthusiasm would vary depending on how cold or wet the venue was. Ron would also have a guest from the sporting world who came on the show as referee and arbiter for all the important points, which racked up on a rather rickety scoreboard, which was probably knocked up by some of the carpenters in BBC Television Centre and transported across the UK to make its next appearance on the sidelines. The guests were pretty good as well, I remember. We used to get lots of footballers like Derek Dugan, Gordon Hill and Bob Wilson, although I think Bob might have been a TV pundit by the time he appeared on the show. Swimmers like Sharon Davies and David Wilkie. And even cricket legend Sir Garfield Sobers appeared on the show. The guests were quite often local as well. So we had Lynn Davies popping up in Wales. 
obviously doing a favour of his old coach, and none other than Olympic gold medalist Mary Peters popping up in Northern Ireland for the show. The teams had to take part in vaguely sporting events, which, from memory, were mostly a variation on obstacle courses and involved scaling small walls and crawling through plastic tunnels and things like that, carrying objects like tennis balls. Or, perhaps I'm making this up, beanbags again. Usually in a sort of tag-team relay cheered on by their increasingly delirious schoolmates, who could, I suppose, just have been fending off the cold and damp of the British climate. Apparently, Peter Charlton, the producer of We Are The Champions, who devised most of the challenges, copied a lot of the elements he'd observed on army assault courses, and was always impressed that kids seemed to be far better at completing the challenges than the armed services recruits. At the end of the event, the guest sporting referee would blow their whistle and solemnly count up the tennis balls or beanbags or whatever, and pronounce the score, which was then cranked onto the wobbling scoreboard, thus building up the tension throughout the programme. We then had a sort of intermission where the guest referee would spend a few minutes in conversation with Ron and some of the children, sharing thoughts on what it was like to win a gold medal or how important training was if you wanted to be successful. All good stuff for the eagerly watching audience at home. And then, after the short chat, the competition started to get serious, as the by now cold and wet participants and their supporters got to go inside to the leisure centre's swimming pool where the same format of assault course type challenges was reproduced, but this time in the water, using lots of inflatables. From my armchair at home, it all looked like incredibly good fun. We never had inflatables in the pool during our school swimming lessons. I think the closest I ever got to that was at secondary school when we had to do our life-saving badges, which involved swimming in pyjamas while picking up things from the bottom of the swimming pool. I could never actually get that. So if ever you found yourself drowning and happened to be wearing pyjamas, you could wave your badge and say you were qualified. Even though it was, with the benefit of hindsight, pretty much done on a shoestring budget, the whole swimming pool, dealing with inflatables, etc., did appear incredibly glamorous to me sat watching at home. Once the final event had been completed, the guests would once again tot up the scores. they go up on the scoreboard and one school would emerge victorious and truly be able to claim that they were the champions. And then Ron Pickering would courteously thank the guest and congratulate all the teams for their hard work before signing off with the words, and away you go, which was the signal for all the competitors to leap into the swimming pool and start playing with the inflatables, throwing them at each other and generally having a whale of a time as the credits rolled. And that moment was about as close to anarchy as 70s kids' TV programming got. And I think we're all a bit jealous of those kids who are allowed to bomb into the water and have lots of fun, the likes of which, I can have to say, never happened during school hours, at least not mine. I've suddenly been struck looking back on the show that it had many things in common with another popular TV show of the time. It's a knockout, and it's European version, Je Sans Frontières, where teams of adults representing their respective towns would, well, do similar things to those featured in We Are The Champions, except with a slightly larger budget, which ran to silly costumes and revolving floors, 
which made sure that everybody got wet or covered with mud or fell over lots of times or whatever. I think that It's a Knockout was generally filmed in the same sort of places as well, like leisure centres and public parks. And it also featured a rather rickety scoreboard and a referee. In this case, rugby leads Eddie Waring or Guido in the European contest, if you remember him. Now, I'm not going to dwell on the presenter, Stuart Hall, given his subsequent fall from grace, but there were obvious similarities. Come to think of it, the BBC show Superstars was a sort of grown-up We Are The Champions as well, featuring professional athletes instead of members of the public. But more on that in a future episode, potentially. Going back to We Are The Champions, it seems amazing to me that the show attracted all of these top sports stars, as well as the great Ron Pickering. But we have to remember it was a different time. And unlike the sports stars of today, there wasn't that much money around in professional sport, even for those right at the top. So getting a few quid for appearing on a kid's show not only helped you with the retirement fund, but also helped encourage future generations of athletes to follow in your footsteps. And all in all, neither of those can be a bad thing. We Are The Champions ran in its original form for an incredible 14 years, by which time the format, I think, had really outstayed its welcome. It continued for a number of years, returning for special editions featuring disabled children, which was a great way of raising the profile of disability, but not quite the same as as it was in the olden days. Ron Pickering's death in 1991 also robbed the show of its natural presenter, and whilst the BBC attempted to fill the void with Gary Lineker, Linford Christie and Judy Simpson, the show never really captured the imagination of children's TV viewers again. 90s kids didn't find anything exciting about being able to jump into the pool, given the increasingly liberal attitudes of parents. They wanted something louder, brasher, and, well, more exciting than watching kids doing obstacle courses at the local leisure centre. To this day, I have never met anyone whose school was on We Are The Champions. So if you or your school featured in the show, not only will I be very, very impressed, but I'd love to hear about it. You can leave a comment on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com. Find us on social media by searching My 70s TV Childhood. Or you can email me directly, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Thanks for listening, as always. And join me again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood. Oh, and keep a lookout on our various sites for some exciting news about future shows. And there's only one way for me to sign this episode off. In fond memory of Ron Pickering, away you go!